Teach me your decrees, O Lord. I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will obey your instructions. I will put them into practice with all my heart. Make me walk along the paths of your commands, for that is where my happiness is found. Give me an eagerness for your laws rather than a love for money. Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. Reassure me of your promise made to those who fear you. Help me abandon my shameful ways, for your regulations are good. I long to obey your commandments. Renew my life with your goodness. Okay, good. So, um, thank you, Holly, for reading that. That's one of my favorite um, little passages of Scripture. Um, If you've been to my house, you may have noticed Amber and I have actually had that section of Psalm 119 on our walls. Um, At one time in our kitchen for a long time, just above our sink, and now it's in our bedroom, but um, posted somewhere kind of prominent within the house for for probably eight or nine years now. Um, But just really love that little section of Scripture. And one thing worth noticing is if you were paying attention, the agent of action in that passage of Scripture, it's not who you might think. If you're familiar with Psalm 119, you know that it's, you know, just kind of this endless, hopeless love story of the psalmist with God's law. And it takes on, it's kind of a life of its own. And you would think it would be, you know, for the most part, the psalmist reciting all the things that he's going to do to prove his love of God's way and God's law. And in that section of Psalm 119, the roles are kind of reversed. The psalmist is asking God to do something, God to work. God renew. God give me understanding. God make me work, walk on your paths. God teach me your ways. Like, it's all God. God, God. And then at the end, it's the psalmist saying, I long to obey your commands. And that um, could, in a way, kind of serve as a thesis for the next several weeks or a mission statement of what we're going to be looking at this summer. Um, I forgot to say something a moment ago, so I'm going to say it now. But you may have noticed this little candle up here. And um, if you're new to this, you may wonder why we have a candle burning. And if you're not new to this, you know that we've been lighting this candle at the beginning of our gatherings as a way to kind of commemorate or consecrate a Sabbath day. And so it's just kind of a visceral, physical practice that we've been doing. I actually lit it before everyone got here this afternoon, or at least most everyone got here, as a way kind of to just remind us of what we've been talking about for the last several weeks and as a way of kind of connecting it to this theme of Father's Day. Because parents, like God, like our Father in Heaven, so often are at work long before we ever show up. They're doing the things that are required for life before we can ever be grateful for them, ever even acknowledge that they're doing them. Our parents were caring and providing for us. And in the same way, God sustains and cares for us in that same way. And so, when you arrived here today, The Sabbath was already underway. God had already provided. Your rest was already taken care of. And so the first candle is lit, and it's just a reminder. It's a practice that we're kind of trying to incorporate into the life of our church. So we're going to try to do it here over the summer, and maybe you'll start doing it at home. Maybe not, but it's up to you. Um, Probably split decision on whether or not you think it's like a helpful practice or not, and that's totally fine. So back to today. In 1956, Cecil B. DeMille's epic film, The Ten Commandments, starring Charleston Heston, Yul Brenner, and Anne Baxter, Anne Baxter was released. Um, to much of fanfare, much critical acclaim, much commercial success. In fact, um, to this day, I think it's still the seventh largest uh, grossing film in history. 
adjusted for uh, inflation, of course. And at the time it was made, it was actually the most expensive film ever made. Um, if you know anything about the movie, uh, DeMille actually had to spend a lot of the money on actually just acquiring rights to film where he did because he wanted to film it in Egypt, like in front of the actual pyramids and on top of Mount Sinai, like he wanted it to be on location. And just to do that cost quite a bit of money. And I would be shocked if anyone in this room has never heard of or has any familiarity with this movie. Is there anyone in that has no idea what I'm talking about? <laughs> My whole sermon's ruined now. No, I'm just kidding. Well, you are a unicorn, Holly. Um, but it is ubiquitous for the most part, I thought, in our culture. Um, in fact, until recently, it was played uh, basically every single Sunday, or not every Sunday, every Easter Sunday on one of the major networks, ABC, NBC, or something like that. In fact, it may still be played on Easter Sunday. I just don't have broadcast television, so I'm not sure. Um, but I feel like I've looked for it, and I didn't see it on. Um, I kind of have fond memories of growing up and going to my grandparents for Easter Sunday. And after the eggs are hunted and the, you know, or the meal's been had, the sun starts to set, and Ten Commandments was on the television. And while I don't know that everybody has those same kind of nostalgic sentiments about the movie, my point is just to say, other than Holly, every one of us has some sort of like inkling of this film. And in fact, I would even venture to say that a lot of cultural uh, understandings and a lot of the, our imagination about God, specifically the Old Testament, is kind of filled in with these images of Charleston Heston on the side of this mountain giving these tablets, smashing them on a golden calf, all the imageries that just kind of come from that era of film and that era of telling biblical stories through film. What a lot of people don't know, though, is that that movie was actually a remake of a 1923 film, also by Cecil B. DeMille, called The Ten Commandments. It was made in 1923. And it was a silent film that was largely cultural critique and Christian apologetics and essentially was trying to kind of comment on the affluence that he saw in Western culture and the distractions and temptations of money and power. And this original version actually had two very distinct parts. The first part was the Exodus narrative, what later was kind of remade into the Heston 1956 epic. But the second half of the film was actually a modern day story set in contemporary America, 1923, and it was the story of a family struggling to learn and to understand the Ten Commandments. It was the story of a mother, her two sons, and one of the sons' love interest trying to um, come to terms with how they should live out the Ten Commandments in 1923 America. So it follows Martha, her two sons John and Dan, and then Dan's love interest, Mary. And of course, being a silent film, I don't know if how many people are familiar with silent films, the way they kind of work is there's some action, some activity, and then they have to actually throw up a dialogue card and you have to read what the people are saying because there's no audio. And so you do that, some action, some action, card comes up, what did the person say? You read it, some more action, right? Because of that limitation, usually these silent films, the dialogue is it's pretty minimal. So you can like read the whole movie in like five minutes. So of course, I did. Um, that is what you do when you're preparing for a sermon. You read silent films, apparently. So, anyways, why am I telling you all this? 
here's, here's how the writer of that earlier film described the main characters. Um, she says, there are four people in the modern story of the Ten Commandments from 1923, and they view these commandments in four distinct ways. There is Mrs. McTavish, the mother, who keeps the commandments but keeps them in the wrong way. She is narrow. She is bigoted. Yet, she is nevertheless a fine, clean, strong woman, just like dozens of women we all know. Then there is the girl, Mary, who doesn't bother about the Ten Commandments at all. She is a good kid, though, but she has spent so much time working that she hasn't learned the Ten Commandments and is mostly oblivious to them. Then there's Dan McTavish. He knows the Ten Commandments. His mother taught them to him, but he rejects them. And then there is John McTavish. He is a garden-variety human being that believes the Ten Commandments are unchanging, immutable laws of the universe. He is mostly a regular fellow, an ideal type of man, high and steadfast principles, who believes the commandments are as practicable in 1923 as they were in the time of Moses. So while I'm sure the proportions and the particularities of these four different ways of viewing the Ten Commandments have certainly changed in our time, I would say that those four viewpoints probably summarize the way some of us, most of us, perhaps all of us, at various times in our walk of faith, encounter the Ten Commandments. We either know them and they become oppressive and we follow them in the wrong way. We either just don't know them and we're so busy and distracted with work and success and other things that we just don't, we're just not even aware of them. Or we know them and we reject them. Or we do our best to kind of keep them, follow them, and understand what they're kind of all about. So why am I telling you all this? Why am I recapping a movie that is literally 100 years old? And that is because today we're actually going to begin a new series on none other than the Ten Commandments. And this may feel like a strange change of pace to some of you. As you know, um, over the last several weeks we've been looking at Sabbath and work. And so um, a few times, I think Jeremy said this uh, over the course of the series, you know, we're basically asking this year, what does life after Easter look like? What does life on the other side of resurrection look like? And so it may feel strange to suddenly go into the Ten Commandments, but in the order of story that our Bible actually gives us, particularly in the Exodus story, it follows a kind of similar pattern. So think about it. If you recall the Exodus story, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. They're given a taskmaster of Pharaoh. They're called to work, but it's oppressive, tyrannical. And so God frees them. We all know the story, the plagues, the miraculous crossing of um, the Red Sea. Uh, then they're kind of thrown into the wilderness, and for three months they're kind of just wandering around and they don't really know what to do. And you may recall in Exodus 16, we actually looked at this a few weeks ago, that is actually where God gives them the Sabbath. So you remember they're in the desert, they're kind of wandering around, and God says, for six days you can gather the manna every morning, and that will provide for you, that will take care of you. That will be your sustenance. But on the seventh day, don't grab any manna. Don't do it. And that's in Exodus 16. But it's only about, uh, it's four chapters later in Exodus 20 that we're actually given the Sabbath command as a part of the law. And so that's where we find ourselves now, today. We go through God's rescue, then God's provision, God's rest, and then God gives us the law. And the order of story is actually really important. 
So we've been following this pattern all spring of Easter and resurrection into Sabbath and work. And now today, of course, we find ourselves at the Ten Commandments. And just as an interesting, what I thought was interesting anyways, little factoid before we actually get into it here, um, a 2019 poll went and surveyed people on the Ten Commandments and asked them, you know, what's the most important commandment or how important are the commandments in your everyday life? And, you know, just kind of asked them these various questions. And they were religious and non-religious people. And so what I found interesting was that the least important commandment for modern people, at least in 2019, was to keep the Sabbath day. And that's just very ironic to me because you would think in a mixed company of religious and non-religious people, you would think one of the first three commandments would surely be like the least important to them. If you don't believe in God, why would you think honoring him above all would be the most important? So moral of the story is, um, apparently we generally think that it is more morally reprehensible to take a day off than it is to worship idol statues, regardless of whether or not we're religious. And so... Y'all didn't think that was that funny. I actually thought it was super ironic. Um, but anyways, moving on, we need to say something here at the outset, um, which I've already kind of alluded to, but it is kind of crucially important. So as we begin discussing the Ten Commandments today, and as we'll be talking about them over the next several weeks, we must keep in mind that the law was given after Israel was liberated from slavery. And we can't really overemphasize this enough. We cannot forget the sequence. It's liberation, then law. It's redemption, then rules. It's deliverance, and then decree. And I think every one of us, if we were to think back on our own story, we would be able to kind of confirm this and see that that is kind of how God works. Because the gospel is not that we suddenly were able to keep God's law, and then he saves us. We didn't merit his favor through our keeping of any commandments, but rather God saved us while we were yet still sinners. So we'll have more to say about this later, but I just thought it, was, it needed to be mentioned kind of here at the outset, and we need to try to keep that in mind as we continue. I think our hope will be, over the next several weeks, to take the Ten Commandments, which are so familiar and ubiquitous that maybe have been filled in by a certain cultural you know, imaginations and, um, you know, understandings that maybe aren't quite as biblical, and maybe we should look at them in a way and see what the scriptures actually have to say. And just like the characters from the movie that I mentioned earlier, um, we'll be asking that question. How do the Ten Commandments, what do the Ten Commandments mean for us today as Jesus followers? And on the other side of it, hopefully, we will have moved a bit closer to the posture that we saw depicted in Psalm 119 that Holly read for us, as ones who long to obey God's commands. The word in Hebrew uh, for to obey, y'all may know this, I think we talked about this a little while back, but um, the word for, for in Hebrew to obey actually also means to hear. It's the same word. The word is Shema. It's where we get the Shema, if you could recall. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first word is just simply Shema, hear. But it also means obey. And so the question I'm kind of putting to you all is what would it mean for us to become a people who no longer need two words for hear and obey when it comes to listening to God's voice? What would it look like for us to be a people who just have one word that when we hear, 
and, and hear God in his scriptures or in prayer, that we are already obeying. And perhaps this is what Jesus is alluding to when he says often, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So let's read quickly from Exodus chapter 20. We won't read all of the commandments just yet, but just as an introduction, and we'll kind of camp out on um, uh, commandment, the first commandment. You don't even have to turn there. It's going to be so brief. But this comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Scripture reads, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So over the next several weeks, we'll be looking at them kind of one by one, taking them each in turn. But today, um, we need to say just a few things about maybe the Ten Commandments kind of as a whole um, but we'll kind of consider it through the lens of that first commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And I'd like to look at the Ten Commandments under kind of three headings this afternoon. I'd like to look at the reality of the Ten Commandments, the relationship of the Ten Commandments, and the role of the Ten Commandments. So the reality, the relationship, and the role. So first thing, I invite us together perhaps, to stop thinking about them as laws or commands. In fact, the original Hebrew scripture never, doesn't call them commands. If you recall in Exodus 20, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord God said all these words. That's the original language. It does just simply say, God spoke these words. Of course, traditionally, Christians and Jewish people have kind of referred to them um, as the commandments, but that's actually more recent than it is ancient. It was originally referred to as the Decalogue, which was just simply the Greek for ten words. And I think this might be a better way for us to approach the ten words. There's another time God spoke ten words. You are all familiar with it. In Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, during the creation story, we are told ten times that God spoke. Likewise, God speaking these ten words from Mount Sinai is like it's an act of creation. He is speaking not merely just some rules, but rather something about reality itself. It is a creative announcement. If we want to keep the law language, if we just can't let go of the Ten Commandments or something, perhaps we should um, just change the way that we're using the word or thinking about it, and instead think about the Ten Commandments as not laws or legal code, but as the law of gravity, or the same way we think about the Pythagorean theorem or something. In other words, it's just the way things are. Remember the character from the movie described earlier, um, I believe it was John McTavish, who believed that the Ten Commandments were just unchanging, immutable laws of the universe. Do you and I think about the Ten Commandments in that way? Are they that foundational and that fundamental for us? And now, this last point is kind of important, but these words are kind of rock-bottom reality, not because necessarily of what they say. And that's a distinction I think is hard for most of us to make, myself included. It's not really the content, per se, of what God says that makes them fundamental and foundational, but rather it is because of who says them 
and who it is that we come to know in and through them. In other words, the reality that is revealed by these ten words, it's not necessarily the law itself per se, but the God who speaks, the God who spoke creation and the God who speaks recreation, the God who speaks redemption. Here's what I mean. <clears throat> think about just like in ordinary, everyday life, what do words normally do when we think about how we use words, how we speak to one another? Normally, words, they communicate something about who we are. When you speak to another person, you're disclosing something about yourself, not just what you think or some opinion that you happen to hold, but you're somehow communicating and sharing something of your person. And this, in this event on Mount Sinai, is what God is doing. He is communicating the reality of who he is. And as I think we'll see over the summer, as we look at these commands and look at these, these laws, we'll start to see that the steadfast, righteous, holy, and loving God makes himself known in and through these commands. Of course, uh, this will find its ultimate meaning in Jesus the word becomes flesh. Which brings us to point number two, the relationship of the commands. So this is why in the uh, Exodus 20, it begins with this little phrase, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so when we see this phrase, the Lord your God, it is a combination of two different Hebrew words for God, Yahweh and Elohim. So, Elohim is a generic term for God that we, if you recall, a couple years ago we did a series where we looked at this word and we talked quite a bit about it and it kind of, I don't know, shook us up a little bit, but Elohim is a word that gets used all throughout Genesis 1 and it's kind of a generic name for God. It's the name that usually refers to him as creator, but it's kind of got an impersonal kind of tone to it. When we use the word Elohim, we're talking about God in a kind of, uh, not impersonal, but in, uh, it lacks the relational intimacy that we know. So Yahweh is this other personal name. And it's all about the special way in which God reveals himself to Israel. It implies intimacy, relationship. It's the same um, name that God reveals to Moses in the scene at the burning bush. And it, um, yeah, it refers to the special relationship that God is establishing between himself and his people. And this is a word that shows up all throughout Genesis chapter 2, where it says that the Lord God formed the man from the dust, and where he speaks directly to Adam and gives him what you might call a certain command or limitation. It says, the Lord God said, you may eat of any tree in the garden except one. And so likewise, here with the ten words from Sinai, God is, continu is continuing to establish this relationship with his people. The biblical word for this, as you all probably know, is covenant. And that is what the Ten Commandments are. They are a covenant that God enters into with his people. And if you think about it, um, all relationships require some kind of covenantal structure or something, right? Relation, any, any meaningful relationships, substantive relationships, they all require some kind of boundary or limitation. Relationships, by nature, impose certain restrictions. In fact, they are bonds. They are ties. I think there's a pervasive sentiment in today's world that sees relationships, especially those that are supposedly founded on love, 
that they should have absolutely no boundaries, no limitations. And I don't think that that's something that um, is necessarily um, not taking place within um, the life of the Christian today. I think we're just as prone to kind of make this mistake as others. That is, we mistakenly believe that to love someone is to never cross them. It is to never restrict them. It is to never come against their will. It is to never come up against them and um, place a boundary or some sort of structure on a relationship. But if you think about all the most meaningful relationships in your life, whether it be with your parents, with your children, with your spouse, even with your friends, all these relationships, in some way or another, make a certain claim upon you. They do, in fact, inhibit you in some way. They limit you. It is precisely because of your love for this person and because of their love for you that neither of you is simply free to just do as you wish whenever and whatever you want because that would be unloving. As G.K. Chesterton kind of famously says in Orthodoxy, love is not blind. That is the last thing that it is. Love is bound, and the more it is bound, the less it is blind. Love is not blind, it is bound. And this being bound by love, as we all have experienced in the most intimate of our relationships, being bound by love is, in fact, where we find true freedom. In a way, even in the storyline of Exodus, this is kind of what is happening. God has rescued the redeem and redeemed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And here, he is giving them these ten words of freedom, and he is binding their relationship. And this is how the Israelites will learn to live free. So if I could say it, I would say it, or if I could say it another way, I would say it like this. There is a kind of relational law. There is a kind of way of understanding or entering into the relational structures of life, which can be oppressive and tyrannical. And this was, ex this was Israel's experience in Egypt. It was slavery. On the other end of the spectrum, however, there is absolute freedom. And this is what our current culture kind of prizes. It is the complete absence of any limitation, of any restriction. But this is just the desert. You can do what you want. You can go where you want. There's no distinctions to be made, but there's also no water. And this is where Israel will end up after they refuse to live free according to God's design. But what is offered to us here in these ten words is true freedom, what James calls the perfect law of liberty. It is life in God's way according to his purpose and his design. This is where God is trying to take the people of Israel. And this is the promised land, the land that flows with milk and honey. For true freedom is becoming who we are, and living within the bounds of our existence. It is creative, vital, and abundant precisely because it submits to the claims of love and liberty, because it does not find the boundaries of reality and relationship burdensome. Which brings us to the final point, which will be sort of the most brief, but the role of the commandments. What is the role of the commandments in the life of the Christian. You know, uh, when we first decided to do the Ten Commandments or to, to take up this theme this summer, I actually initially kind of thought to myself, yes, this will be so easy. Everybody knows the Ten Commandments, super familiar, like this will be 
you know, so easy and it'll make for an easy, you know, summer series, so to speak. And I don't know, maybe, maybe at some level, Jeremy and Dylan also felt the same way. I don't know. Um, but the more I've thought about it and the more I've prepared for this over the last couple of weeks, the more I've realized that to, to begin talking about the Ten Commandments really quickly starts to drill down into the nitty-gritty of what it means to follow Jesus and precisely where one's faith is. It takes us down into some crucial aspects, not only of what we believe, not only of what we say we believe, but how that actually lines up with how we live. And it isn't long before I found myself tangled up in knots that don't seem easy to untie. And here's what I mean. If you've walked with Jesus for any amount of time at all, you know that sometimes you stumble. Sometimes you don't keep all ten commandments. Sometimes you don't measure up. and Sometimes the law feels like too much. It might be simple, but it is extremely difficult. The Ten Commandments are sometimes the furthest thing from our minds in moments of frustration or in an argument, during periods of sadness or confusion. Even if you're just tired or hungry after a long day, being good, I guess, or treating another with courtesy feels difficult. What was once easy and effortless sometimes feels impossible. I know some of us struggle with an ever-pervasive guilt because when we look at the ten words, this even came up, I think, during our consideration of Sabbath over the last couple weeks, when we start to think about these commands, a pervasive guilt kind of takes over us and we see nothing but condemnation. We look at the ten commandments and all we see is a litany of our mistakes, all our failures, all the ways we've disappointed God every time we've lacked in some way. And because sometimes, even on the other side of salvation, sometimes even on the other side of Easter, the Ten Commandments are anything but easy. So let me say this. First, that you are in good company. Paul says to the Roman church, for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very things I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. It comes from Romans chapter 7. In another place, Paul addresses the Galatian church on this issue. Because if you recall, we were in Galatians a few years ago. Um, in the Galatian church, they found themselves kind of playing the part of the mother from the movie I, I mentioned at the beginning. They're keeping the commandments. They're keeping the commandments really good in Galatia. They're just doing it in the wrong way, you could say. So Paul confronts them. And there, Paul tells the Galatian church, he says, The law, though, is just merely a tutor, a guardian. For now that Jesus has come, we are no longer under the law. In his language, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Galatians 3.25. Then he says this. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. 
because by works of the law, no one will be justified. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Galatians 2, 16 and 21. In my experience, I have found that most often when I find myself kind of overrun with guilt and kind of drowning in my inability to keep what I believe to be God's will and God's law for my life, when I find myself the most anxious, the most burdened by the Ten Commandments, what's really going on often is this. I have not rightly understood the first commandment. Something about it I have not heard correctly. I'm not living in accordance with it, in obedience to it. In other words, I find that most of the time when I am burdened by guilt, that is because I have actually placed the law in the first place and not God. Typically what I've done is set up the law and put it before God. I have decided that the rock-bottom reality of the universe is in fact God's law, not God's person. I have set in the first place the rock-bottom reality not the personal presence of the Lord God who gives the law as a gift, but rather I have decided that the relationship that matters most is my relationship and my obedience to the law itself, not Jesus. And I have elevated the role of the law over and above the saving work of Jesus Christ. As Paul says, I have made it so that Christ died for no purpose. This, I find, typically is what is going on with me most of the time when I am wearied by guilt and condemnation. It is not necessarily that I'm thinking too little of myself, having pity on myself that I'm not good enough. In fact, it's the exact opposite. If I really do the hard work and dig down, what I find is that I actually think far too highly of myself and am disappointed when I don't live up to my own expectations as if I was capable of keeping the law perfectly. And then when I don't, I play judge, jury, and executioner and sentence myself to repeat the patterns of failure, guilt, and shame again and again and again, all the while perpetuating the cycle of failure, guilt, and shame, while I secretly believe that if I could just keep God's law, then I'll be accepted. Then he will love me and then everything will get better in my life. But this, friends, I don't believe, and I think the scriptures testify to this fact, is not the role of the law in the life of the Christian. Keeping the commands is something that we can do, certainly, with increasing consistency. But when we do inevitably still sometimes fail, it is in those moments that the law tutors us back to Christ leads us back to him, shows us his grace and beauty, and reminds us of our need both for his forgiveness and his grace to keep at it, to keep going, and to return to our knees in worship and be in a position to, re- to receive his rescue once again. And so, as a closing reflection, I'm just going to give us a few moments We'll come back to this again and again over the next couple of weeks, but um, as is kind of our custom here, we often take time to just kind of briefly reflect on kind of where we're at and what we've discussed. And so um, for about three minutes or so, we're just going to have silent reflection there in prayer with you. 
um, and God. And just kind of answering these questions as we kind of make a first kind of foray into our summer series on the Ten Commandments, thinking about this first commandment. What occupies the first place in your life and what defines your reality and your relationships? Because everyone places something in this spot. Everyone has something that serves as the bedrock reality of their life. It goes on to shape not only their reality, but their relationships, both with God, with other people, with their very self, and with the material world. So what will it be? Recall what we said this afternoon, that reality, relationships, they all kind of have a certain law intrinsic to them. They all make a certain claim on us. So no matter what we put into that spot, wealth, comfort, marriage, success, being a good person, being seen as a good person, no matter what we put there, it will inevitably dictate our reality and our relationships, and ultimately our freedom or lack thereof. And so, what or who do you secretly think is going to rescue you? And what is, in another way of saying it, is your if only? If only I had this, if only I did this. Is it another pharaoh, another oppressive tyrant, or is it the rescuer, the redeemer we know as Jesus? So we'll take about three minutes, and then I'll come back up and pray for us, and we'll continue together in communion and worship. I invite Kyler back up. So we cannot see the law as something we do to earn or keep God's favor. Because remember, we are kept in the promise of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus said this is the new covenant, that we are kept by him, that his body is broken. so that we might die to sin and the law, that we are kept by Jesus because his life, his blood was poured out so that we might have new life in him. And Jesus calls this the new covenant. As Paul says in Romans, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are kept by Jesus Christ. His body broken, his blood poured out. So what I invite you to do is we'll come down front and we'll receive the elements. Um, And then you can take them back to your seat as Kyler's playing. Then after everybody has the elements, we'll actually stand and we'll um, receive them together. um, And then we'll have a a reading. um, And then we'll continue together in song. So if you have the elements, I invite you, you can take the bread. 
Because Jesus died so that we might be freed from the condemnation of the law, we receive His body broken. We also remember that Jesus lived a perfect life, hearing and obeying every commandment perfectly. And so His blood was poured out as a seal and a promise that His life is now ours so that we might walk in newness and abundance of life, keeping in step with His Spirit. So we receive the cup. And it's only now, having received Christ, that we can hear these ten words, ten commandments, not as condemnation, but rather, as the Apostle James says, as the perfect law of liberty as those who not only hear the word, but who live and act and are doers of these ten words. So if you would, read this with me. 